0: Father, we come again to you and we ask that you would meet us here this morning as you have already helped us to worship you in song, help us to worship you through your word. Father, magnify your name, help us Lord to glory in the gospel of Christ as a result of seeing the perversion of the Pharisees here. Help us to look to Christ, be satisfied in him as a result of our study here this morning. that's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We pick up this morning with a study we began last week looking at the tragedy of traditionalism. And as I finished the sermon last week, I was making my way down and Frank Shannon, I didn't tell him I was going to mention him, Uh, Frank Shannon, a retired elder at Calvary, uh, he approached me. And Sherrod really reminded me of an illustration that I had heard. I think I heard this when I was in seminary, but Frank told it in a fresh way. Uh, And I want to share it with you. You probably heard it before. But there was a newlywed couple, and every time the wife would make a roast, the husband noticed that she would cut the ends off. And so one day he asked her finally, honey, why do you do that? She said, well, that's just the way my mom does it. And so they decided to go to mom and ask mom why she did that. So they asked her, and she said, Well, that's just the way my mom always did it. And so then they went to Grandma and asked her why it was that she cut the roast off on both ends before she cooked it, thinking there was some secret. You know, this is a way to make it delicious. And she looked at them and said, Oh, that's just because my pan only holds half of a roast. And often traditions are that way, aren't they? We do them just because that's what we have always done. And that's not too big of a deal when it comes to the way you cook a roast. But when it comes to worshiping the true and living God, what we do and how we worship Him is a matter of greatest importance. Because as we began to see last week, there is a way that you can worship the right God in the wrong way. You can do all the religious ceremonies and have all the the loftiest theological confessions that are historically grounded and orthodox. You can go through all the rituals and even have the right God at the end of it all. Yet, your heart, verse 6 of Mark 7, your heart can be far, far from God. And as a result, your worship... Is rendered totally worthless, pointless, vain, empty, futile. And that's what our Lord was dealing with in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. The Pharisees and the scribes, remember, had elevated their tradition so far above the Word of God that they had effectively buried it under their man made ceremonies. And their worship, while directed at the true and living God, was nothing but external religiosity. While well, they emphasized the externals. That was what they emphasized. Jesus did the exact opposite. For them, ceremony, ritual, externalism, that's what it was all about. Jesus was the opposite. Jesus taught His disciples that true worship always flows from the heart. And that the Father's great desire for them was that they would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which, of course, was nothing new. It was what God always prescribed and demanded of His people. And so what we have here in Mark 7 is really a clash of theologies. A clash of convictions, a clash of worldviews. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees who had exalted their tradition above the Word of God and had formed a legalistic system of works righteousness that emphasized externals. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, you had Jesus who represented the purest form of Old Testament religion that saw the main thing as the heart. And so when the Pharisees looked at Jesus and saw Him snubbing their traditions, of course, they took issue with it. And they came to Him and they asked Him directly, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Their question opened a door for Jesus to walk in and pull the mask off of the religious show and the hypocrisy of Israel's leadership. And at the same time, it underscores for us what we ought to prioritize in true worship. Which is where we pick up in verse 6. So why don't you stand with me and we'll begin reading, actually in Mark 7, but we'll begin reading in verse 5 down through verse 13. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his, mother or his, to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, That is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many things things such as that. You may be seated. So it all begins, really, with this clash of theologies, clash of convictions. The Pharisees, externalists, formalists, ritualists, they see that Jesus is not training his disciples to uphold the tradition And so they come to him in verse 5, and they ask him, why does he not train his disciples to uphold their tradition? Specifically, why is he letting them eat their bread without ceremonially clean hands? Why do they eat with impure hands? Remember, this has nothing to do with sanitation and everything to do with ceremony. To eat with impure hands was to eat your food without going through the elaborate rituals that the Pharisees taught as the will of God. It wasn't biblical, that's clear. I mean, over and over in this text, the tradition, tradition is emphasized. It was not biblical. It was simply the Pharisees' tradition. And of course, they ask the question, but they don't really want to know the answer. By this point, they've already formulated their opinion of Jesus. This is not a, a mission to explore who is Jesus you look back at chapter 3 and verse 6, you remember that these men were already plotting with the Herodians to kill Jesus. And the same chapter, chapter 3, they had already accused Jesus of being in collusion with the devil. So they're not curious about why Jesus is not training his disciples according to the tradition. They are trying to Trap Jesus, John 8, 6 says they often did this. Test him so that they might have some grounds to accuse him. That's what's at work here. Now, of course, Jesus knows exactly what they're doing. Now, although they're trying to hide behind a religious veil, an external show of righteousness, before Jesus, their hearts, it was an open book to him. There was nothing to hide. And so Jesus responded to them, not with the sort of gentility and kindness and meekness that we have seen in Jesus up to this point, but Jesus goes directly after them and exposed them for their hypocrisy. And as he unmasked these phony religious leaders, he exposes two realities that were at work inside their hearts. And there are realities that ought to give us all a level of pause and a reason to check our own hearts and our own practices just to make sure that we too aren't living behind the mask of Pharisaism. And the first reality emerges in verse 6. As Jesus pulls the mask off, we see that these men are not at all what they seemed to be. From the outside looking in, they appeared to be righteous and holy men. And that was the consensus of everyone around. But the external appearance was far from the internal reality. These men were nothing but hypocrites. In fact, they had perfected the art of hypocrisy, as we'll see. They weren't just hypocrites. They were elite hypocrites. And we'll see that as we work through. Let's look at verse 6. And he said Jesus said to them rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites And then he goes on to quote from Isaiah 29:13 the Septuagint version He says as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far away from me in vain do they worship me Now it's hard to imagine a stronger indictment on a group of religious leaders. These men purported to be the godliest people in town. And everyone looked at them as if it were so. And Jesus looked at them and said, You are a people who honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from Him. Thus... All of your religiosity, all of your worship, all of your show, all of your ceremony, all of that is completely worthless, vain. You should just go home and stop coming here. Now, only God could make that kind of assessment. Only God could do that. No mere mortal has the kind of authority to look at someone and say, yep, your heart is utterly far removed from God and your worship is utterly in vain. We we don't have that capacity to look into the hearts of people. We can look at someone and say, brother, will you please stop dancing in the aisle because you're distracting from corporate worship? We can say that, right? We can do that. But we can't look at him and say, that is vain, heartless worship. We can't do that any more than he can look at you with your hands in your pockets and say, well, look at that, it's vain, heartless worship. No, we don't have that capacity. Only God can look into the heart of a worshiper and analyze its sincerity. And that's what our Lord does here. Because he is God, he's able to look through the exterior mask of hypocrisy and see what was really going on in their hearts and expose it. And he calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites. We need to think about that word for just a minute. What does it mean to be a hypocrite? The word is a transliteration of the Greek word hypocrites, which referred to an actor in a play. A hypocrite was someone who was able to get on stage and embody a specific role in such a way that the audience became convinced that they were really the person they pretended to be. That was a hypocrites, a hypocrite. It was a person who pretended to be someone on the outside for show that was different from who, who they really were on the inside. It's a play actor, movie star. And of course, this was a perfect description of the Pharisees. The quote from Isaiah 20, 29, 13 just unpacks that. A little bit more, beginning in verse 6. This people honors me with their lips. That's externalism. They know what to say. And so they say it. They honor me with their lips. They regard me in an honorable way with their mouths. But their hearts, the internal part, the inner man, is far from me. In other words, there is a radical disconnect between the inner man and the outer man. They profess to love God, but on the inside, they have no real love for Him at all. And Jesus quotes Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13. And I think He does this just to demonstrate, not that Isaiah was foretelling the Pharisees, predicting that they would rise, but He's saying that the scribes and the Pharisees were... At the same level of hypocrisy that led Israel into captivity. Isaiah was prophesying and saying that judgment was coming on the people of God unless they repent. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and scribes and saying, You've learned nothing. Nothing. You have learned nothing from the Babylonian exile. In fact, over the course of hundreds of years... You, you have grown worse. You've buried the word of God under centuries of man-made tradition. And their traditionalism had become a breeding ground for their hypocritical religion. And their religion, the religion of the Pharisees, was a religion of mere lip service to God. It's important that we note that this was not the religion of the Old Testament. Old Testament religion, as we saw last week, was a religion that flowed from the heart. There were certainly ceremonies and signs and types and shadows. True. But God's demands on His people then, the same as it is in the New Testament, the same as it is now, was that worship would flow from the heart. What the Pharisees were propagating, spreading was something different. It was not the heart religion of the Old Testament. It was a self-righteous, man-made tradition full of hypocrisy and vain and worthless and ultimately, Isaiah 1, an abomination to God. The Old Testament Jewish religion of the heart was picked up in true Christianity. Christianity. And Jesus was walking that out. John the Baptist walked that out. The early church walked that out. This was the carrying out of Old Testament religion from the heart. The Pharisees had a different religion that honored God with their lips while their heart was far from Him. Now It was John Calvin who said that a hypocrite is someone who hides the iniquity of their heart with empty words. That's exactly what the religion of the Pharisees was. It was a way to hide the inner sin of the heart behind a veil and show of righteousness. They said the things that honored, the God, honored God, but they were simply hiding sin and they were going through the motions of religion. Now, that's, that's an ever-present reality for all of us. I mean, at least a temptation. I'm not saying we're all hypocrites. I mean, we are in one sense... I'm going to get on a rabbit trail here. Um, of course, we are here because we are sinners. We are all sinners. We are all prone to hypocrisy. Orthodoxy, right theology, does not keep you from hypocrisy. Right? Orthodoxy is not a safeguard against hypocrisy. In fact, you can be an orthodox hypocrite. You can be a reformed hypocrite. You can have all the right theology and and be able to articulate it in a way that's superior than the next guy or gal, and yet your heart is far from God. There's always, and this is my point here, there's always a danger in holding the right truths and worshiping the right God, but doing it in word only. We have to be aware of that. Listen to J.C. Ryle's comments on this. The heart, he wrote, is the part of man which God chiefly notices in religion. The bowed head and the bended knee, the grave face, the rigid posture, the regular response, the formal amen, all these together do not make up a spiritual worshiper. The eyes of God look further and deeper. He requires the worship of the heart. My son, he says to every one of us, give me thy heart. Let us remember this in the public congregation. It must not content us to take our bodies to church if we leave our hearts at home. The eye of man may detect no flaw in our service. Our pastor may look at us at us with approval. Our neighbors may think us patterns of what a Christian ought to be. Our voice may be heard foremost in praise and prayer. But it is all worse than nothing in God's sight if our hearts are far away from Him. It is only wood, hay, and stubble before Him who discerns thoughts and reads the secrets of the inward man. Great warning. We all have to be on guard that we don't bring our bodies to church and leave our hearts at home, right? We, we have to beware that we don't merely parrot right theology with our lips, go through the motions of worship while our minds are absent and far removed from God. That's a danger we're all prone to and we have to fight against. Praise God, there is pardon and forgiveness for hypocrites like you and like me. But I think the hypocrisy that Jesus is addressing here was actually a more sinister version of hypocrisy than we are talking about now. I mean, hypocrisy is hypocrisy, sure. But I don't think Jesus is rebuffing the Pharisees here because in their pure worship of God, sometimes they would mindlessly drift and have to bring themselves back in, which is what the Christian does. Now, the level of hypocrisy that Jesus is addressing here is far more sinister than this sort of brief absent-mindedness. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees was hypocrisy in its finest form. These men had perfected the art of hypocrisy and they lived out their hypocrisy at the pinnacle level. These guys, Jesus said, would sound a trumpet as they gave money to the poor. That way everyone around would know what they were doing. Jesus said even when they prayed, they prayed... Just to be seen by men. Think of the hypocrisy. there. I'm pretending to talk to God, but I'm really hoping that you think I'm great. Jesus said when they fasted, they would distort their faces, even with makeup, so that they looked miserable. So that it would sort of force people to say, wow, you look really rough today. Is everything okay? And they got you. And they would say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm okay. I'm just fasting again. It's my third fast this week. Just trying to honor the Lord. It was a way for them to trumpet their own righteousness. And that's why Jesus said, beware of trumpeting your righteousness before men. You do that, you get your reward, which is man's praise. And that's where it stops. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 5, that the Pharisees did all that they did to be noticed by men. We rush past that. They do all their deeds, he said, to be noticed by men. Now, if you or I say that, That's probably an exaggeration. But Jesus was not exaggerating here. Every religious thing they did, they did in order to receive man's praise. And the consequence of their hypocritical religiosity was that while they fooled people into thinking they were godly and received man's praise, Jesus said they were going to hell. In fact, he said that everyone who follows in their steps, well, they become twice as much sons of hell as the Pharisees. It's Matthew 23, 15. In other words, God was not impressed with their externalism any more than he's impressed with the externals today. He's not fooled by hypocrisy in the least bit God sees through the guise of religion down into the heart of every man and the only worship that is acceptable in His sight is that which flows from the heart. That's the religion that pleases our Lord. It's a religion and a life that flows from the heart and lives first and foremost for God's smile God's favor and God's reward. Hypocrisy is the opposite. It lives for man's praise, instant reward, and the consequence of that will be eternal destruction. So the Pharisees then had fooled everyone into thinking they were something other than who they really were. When Jesus showed up, he pulls the mask off and exposed their Hypocrisy for at least for his disciples. That's the first thing we see. The mask comes off, and Jesus says, Look, they are not what they are purporting to be. Don't be fooled. There's a second thing he exposed, and that was this. Not only had they perfected the art of hypocrisy, but they had also surreptitiously or underhandedly, sort of secretly, undermined the word of God by elevating their tradition to the level of Scripture. Look at verse 7b. Jesus said that they were teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In other words, they were teaching man's ideas as that which was officially binding on God's people. And So they had elevated their tradition and ritual to the same level as the Word of God. But then they actually took it a step further. It wasn't just that tradition became on par with Revelation, but eventually their tradition usurped Revelation and became the final authority, which is what always happens when you elevate tradition to the level of divine revelation. It's only a matter of time before that Tradition usurps the place of God's Word as the ultimate authority. That's the danger of traditionalism. Look at verse 8. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. So you teach as doctrines the precepts of men. They're right here together. But then you neglect the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Interesting language here, the word neglect is the word afi'emi, which is often translated as forgive. It means to dismiss or release someone from an obligation. In forgiveness, it means to release someone from debt. You've sinned against me, that's a debt you owe me. You ask for my forgiveness, you repent, you're cleared of the debt, there's no longer any debt here, brother, you're pardoned. But here, the word aphiimi is not talking about forgiveness. It's it's still talking, though, about a release. In this case, it means the release of someone from the legal and moral obligations to Scripture, to the Word of God. You, You neglect the Word of God, or the commandment of God, meaning that you release people from their obligation to obey it. How do you do that? Well, by your tradition. Your tradition has been exalted above the commandment of God so that people are no longer obligated to obey God. They're obligated to obey you. Boy, that's a position you don't want to put yourself in. So Jesus is saying, look, you guys are hypocrites. And you're releasing people from the obligation to obey God from the heart by the exaltation of your man-made commandments. And then he says in verse 9 explicitly, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. It's not just that you do it from time to time. It's not just you did it today. It's not just a one-time thing. You are experts at this. Meaning that you hit the highest marks of excellence when it comes to devaluing and undermining the Word of God. Well done. You're the experts at compromise, of undercutting, of devaluing God's Word. And you do this, verse 9, he says... You set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So, you undermine the Word of God by sidestepping it in favor of your traditions. It's interesting the Jerusalem Talmud, which, remember, was the codification of these sort of oral traditions. Uh, the Talmud wasn't written down until about 200 A.D., so 200 years after Jesus. But it was the codification, meaning it was all the oral traditions that were passed down, and then they took them and, and wrote them down about 200 A.D. In the Talmud, it says this, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. It says this about... Rabbi Hillel. It is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of Rabbi Hillel than to transgress the words of Scripture. Amazing. That seemed reasonable to them. Isn't that amazing? The same tradition... You know, that could trace its way all the way back to Moses, all the way back to David, Psalm 119, Psalm 19. And here they are somehow. Because they have a, jettisoned the word of God in favor of their traditions, now they have exalted tradition above the word of God, and they can say, well, Scripture's great, but Rabbi Hillel, his word is superior. Shocking. And this was the thing, this is what Jesus was dealing with here. This is why he goes straight to the heart of it all. This is why he doesn't just sort of sidestep and say, hey, let me pull you aside in private and talk with you about this. No, he's dealing with hypocrisy at its finest. He's dealing with experts at undermining the holy word of God. And Jesus has no time for this. These men were compromised. Not only that, they had rebelled against God in their religiosity. And the consequence was if they won people over to their way, it was the blind leading the blind, and they all went to hell. Jesus said, they are blind guides. Just imagine that, I mean that language, blind guide. Well, Jesus gives an example of their expertise in undermining the Word of God and removing, releasing people from the obligation to uphold God's law. How were they experts? Well, Jesus says, let me give you one example. Let me give you an illustration of how you guys do this. Look at verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Now, the first line there is the fifth commandment. You know that. Honor your father and mother. The second quote is from Exodus 21, 17. That underscored the consequences, the heavy consequences of dishonoring one's parents. Just to speak evil of them, to slander them, merited the death penalty. It shows you God's value, his esteem, and his obligations on children to honor their parents but the pharisees had had devised a clever way around this command especially when it came to financial needs look at verse 11 And, and as you look at this just notice the contrast in verse 10 we saw what god said through moses about parents and now in verse 11 jesus says but you say. You say. The you here is emphatic. It's thrown all the way to the front in Greek and it's redundant. It's not necessary in Greek. It's redundant. The point here is Jesus is drawing this strong contrast between what God says and what you hypocrites are saying. God says, honor your father and mother. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you, is Corbin. That is to say, given to God. I had some money that I was going to help you with, but I'm sorry, you're in trouble. Uh, that money is actually Corbin. It's, it's given to God. The sentence implies that parents come you know, as sort of a scenario where the parents come to the child with a need. They need some help financially perhaps. And the Pharisees had trained the people that they could tell the parents if they come to you asking for your money you just tell them that you have dedicated your finances to God. That's what the word Corbin means. Vowed or dedicated or offered to God. The rabbis had taught this principle of Corbin. They could set aside all of their funds or a part of their funds in a ceremonial way with all the glory and all the hype that you can imagine would have attended this sort of pharisaical ceremony and ritual. That they could do this and dedicate their money to God so that it was unavailable for humans to use. But it was technically a deferred offering, meaning that the person dedicating it could use it when he needed it, but he just couldn't allow other people to use it. The Pharisees were teaching people that if your parents come to you then and you've underwent this glorious, praiseworthy ceremony of dedicating your finances to God, if someone came to you in financial need and you've dedicated your funds as Corbin, well then now you can't use your funds to support them even if it's your mom and dad. Which is what Jesus means by verse 12. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. And this sort of became a strategic financial plan for the Pharisees. Just watermark your money as Corbin. That way you never have to help anyone, including your parents. So They would go through the ceremony of giving their money to God, not so they could actually give it to God, but so that they could prevent other people from having it. It didn't matter what God said, because the tradition says. This is what Jesus meant by verse 13. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. You're experts at this. This is one example, Jesus says, at the end of verse 13. There are a lot of ways you do this, but this is the one that just comes to mind. And all of this demonstrates the same reality that's repeated throughout this section. Look, at, We see it in verse 8. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9. Setting aside the commandment of God, you keep your tradition. Verse 13. You invalidate the word of God by your tradition. You get the point. All three verses are essentially saying the same thing. But verse 13 sort of brings it all to culmination. Jesus says, By your exaltation of tradition above Scripture, you have invalidated the Word of God. Meaning you have rendered it ineffectual because you failed to recognize its exclusive and absolute authority over all of life and you have buried it under your tradition. And as, and, and in doing this, rather, You have brought yourselves on the brink of spiritual ruin. Why was that? Why did this traditionalism bring them into the position of spiritual ruin? Well, they were hypocrites. They had perfected the art of hypocrisy. They had buried the word of God into their tradition. And then all they were left with then was their man-made religion. They had exchanged God's way of salvation for their own. Which is always what you get when you abandon God's way. You, you either have God's way, or you have man's way. And apart from divine revelation, man will always set himself to work his way into heaven. Always. Always apart from God stepping in and revealing what we just sang about, apart from God stepping in and revealing truth to us, man will set himself to work his way to heaven. Which is why every religion other than evangelical Christianity is an attempt to make one's way to heaven By his own best efforts. Every religion. Outside of evangelical Christianity, you have works righteousness. We are gospel Christians. That's Evangelical Christianity. We hold to the gospel. You go outside of that, the gospel to us is God's wisdom. You go outside of God's wisdom, you get the foolishness of man. And in man's folly, and you know this because you lived this life, before the Lord intervened. In man's folly, he always thinks that he can be good enough to make God happy and gain eternal life by his righteous efforts. If you're curious about that, search Ray Comfort. He'll ask them, do you think you're a pretty good person? 99.9% of the people say yes. Doesn't matter. I mean, you could do this yourself doesn't matter if you know how terrible i mean yeah, i would imagine if you ask hitler did you think you were a pretty good person yeah yeah i was a pretty good person this is man's delusion he thinks he's good he thinks he can somehow trick god into thinking that what's on the outside is really what's going on on the inside rather than emphasizing the heart man emphasizes the external and lowers the standard for heaven so that everyone feels like, yeah, I could get in there. I'm a pretty good person. And actually, the Pharisees lowered the standard so low that it's actually laughable. For them, it wasn't about morality at all. It was about ritual. And here, Mark's emphasis, he spends, what is that, verse 3 and 4 talking about their ritual of cleaning things, of hand washing. It's not just go feed the hungry in Africa and then you get to go to heaven. You know, that's okay. That's wrong. But that's better than what the Pharisees were offering here. This is clean your dishes the right way and God will be happy with you. Wash your hands the right way before you eat your food and you know you're in good shape. There's like... This is all moral. This is nothing moral about this. This is like the lowest common uh, level of attainable righteousness. Just wash your hands. Well, we're all in good shape if we're doing that, right? I hope so. Some of you are in bad shape. I'd say it's laughable because they had actually elevated hand washing to the level that it had become salvific. Listen to what one rabbi in the Pharisaic tradition said. Whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his food with washed hands may rest assured that he will have eternal life. (laughs) What? This is the way of man. Traditions start off well, perhaps. But eventually, when they usurp the place of the Word of God, they lead to spiritual ruin because ultimately they jeopardize God's way of salvation and substitute it with a man-made path to heaven. You abandon God's way, you get A man-made religion that constitutes salvation by works. But that's not divine religion. That's not what James calls pure and undefiled religion. That's not religion from heaven. That's not the gospel. The religion of Christianity is a divine revelation. No man would ever have conceived the gospel on his own. The gospel comes to us in Scripture and tells us that we are not good, but we are radically depraved. Meaning to the core of our beings we are bent. We are sinful and we are at enmity with God. And no matter how much we try to clean ourselves up, wash our hands, we can never rid ourselves of the stain and filth of sin. We need a righteousness that exceeds the external righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And you can't get that level of righteousness on your own. You can never be enough. And the gospel says, that's okay. Yeah, you, you're, you could never be enough. You're actually far worse than you think you are. You think you're bad, but it's way worse. Uh, you're far off than you, are, than you think you are. And Jesus says, that's okay. If I gave you a ladder to try to climb to get to heaven, you could never make it up. But what I'll do is I will come to you. So our Lord leaves heaven and comes to earth and as the God-man earns a righteousness for you and me. And if you trust in Him, His righteousness, His goodness is credited to your account. That is the great exchange. That's God's way. Salvation by faith alone. It means ways that you need to be good enough. Keep climbing that ladder. God says, you're never going to get there. You can never be good enough. Man's way says, just keep these laws and God will be happy. And he might let you into heaven. God says, nope, I will never let you in. You're too sinful to keep even one of my commands from the heart, which is why traditions and man-made religion bypasses the heart. Because to have true heart religion, you must have a new heart. And God is the one who does that transformation. And the Lord says, I will do that. I will give you a new heart if you bow to me in faith. The Lord says, your best righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6, is like filthy rags. It's, it's easy to laugh at the hand-washing rituals of the Pharisees. But think of the most righteous thing you've ever done. The best thing. The thing you think, yeah, that will get me in for sure. The Lord says that's like going up to the gates of heaven and saying why should God saying why should I let you into my heaven and you say well I have a bag of trash here. It's a good bag of trash. I've worked my whole life to earn it. I've got it here. I offer it to you wholeheartedly. It's folly. God says you can't do that. The best you have to offer is not enough, but I will give you all that you need. Trust in my Son. And the gospel is, for us, the gospel is reality. The gospel is what the the Christian life is about. The gospel is what we're about at Calvary Bible Church. It's the good news that in Jesus we have been given something far superior to our own righteousness. We've been given the righteousness of Christ by faith. And that is what God offers to everyone. But if you reject that in favor of man-made ideas, you cut yourself off from God's way, which is spiritual ruin. It's not just spiritual ruin for you, but it's spiritual ruin for all the disciples you make. That's why traditionalism is so deadly. Because it's not just about traditions. It's about the exaltation eventually of those traditions above the Word of God which undermine God's way of salvation. And when you do that, you create a breeding ground for hypocrisy. You undermine the Word of God, which always leads to spiritual ruin because ultimately it cuts you off from the only true hope of salvation in Christ Jesus. So may the Lord help us to be on guard against hypocritical, pharisaical ritualism we don't do a lot of rituals here. We have tried to streamline things to guard against facilitating empty ceremonialism, empty ritualism. But it doesn't take much to latch on to for that pharisaical bent within all of us. So just be on guard as you come. Remember that the worship God asks of you and me is a worship that flows From the heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this timely reminder. Lord, we bless you. We celebrate. We're grateful for this wonderful time of worship you've given us this morning. We pray that you would multiply these moments in our fellowship. Father, that you would continue to open our eyes to your word. And help us all to offer worship to you that flows from a renewed, regenerated heart. And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen.